This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, America's public hospitals. Some of them are among the best hospitals in America. The high level of expertise necessary that's too expensive for nonprofit hospitals to maintain their own units are maintained in public hospitals. The undeserved bad rap on public hospitals when Radio Health Journal returns. Here's something you may not have considered when you visit the dentist. Your mouth is the gateway to the body. It's where germs enter. Saliva and other material from the mouths of dozens of patients per day builds up inside the vacuum tube and saliva ejection valve. And Dr. Jerry Cohen, clinical assistant professor at a dental school in the Midwest, says if backflow occurs in the saliva ejection valve, it may expose patients to dangerous infectious material. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, backflow occurs in about one in five patients who close their lips around a saliva evacuator tip, pulling liquid and any germs left behind by the last patient back into a person's mouth. That's why Dove backflow prevention valves from Stoma Dental are a critical technology to prevent cross-contamination. The new disposable Dove backflow prevention valve from Stoma Dental is a one-way valve that prevents backflow and eliminates cross-contamination between patients. Dentists can have a new level of confidence in their infection control efforts, and patients can too. Find out more at BeSafeDental.com. Public hospitals get a bad rap these days, and have for decades. They're in major cities throughout the United States and are funded at least in part through taxpayer dollars. But society perceives public hospitals as being run down, poorly managed, and poorly staffed and equipped. They also have a reputation of providing mediocre medical care that only the poor seek out because they can't afford anything else. But experts say this scenario is a myth. The quality of care issues were much more problematic for public hospitals 30 and 40 years ago when all you had in them was essentially attending physicians from medical schools that were training these physicians and not sort of the highest level of care that was available in the community. That's changed a lot in the last 20 years. That's Mike King, author of A Spirit of Charity, Restoring the Bond Between America and Its Public Hospitals. In the last 20 years, I think a lot of major public hospitals around the country, whether it's at Bellevue in New York City or Grady here in Atlanta or Cook County Hospital in Chicago, there's some high-quality health care going on there. And it goes on in three or four very specific areas of expertise. Trauma care, we associate trauma care with public hospitals because almost all of them have a major trauma component to it. We associate stroke neuroscience care because, again, in major inner cities, the incidence rate of stroke is pretty high. Therefore, the expertise around stroke care is now often available at public hospitals as opposed to private hospitals. But that's not all. King says there are other important services that public hospitals excel at providing. HIV AIDS, which is almost always affiliated with public hospitals as well, burn care, sort of the high level of expertise necessary that's too expensive for nonprofit hospitals to maintain their own units are maintained in public hospitals. In fact, when King's own wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, she selected a public hospital over a regular one. She felt the public hospital offered her better, more personal care. We went to Grady. My wife talked to her at length for, I guess, maybe two hours one day and came away feeling very comfortable with her as a surgeon. So the surgery was performed at Grady and went off without a hitch. And when you need an emergency room, King says there's usually no better place than a public hospital. The 
the best trauma centers around the country are almost always in public hospitals like county. It's interesting what's happening with trauma care in some parts of the country. This hasn't affected county in Chicago, and it hasn't really affected Grady here in Atlanta very much. But in public hospitals in Texas and in Florida and a few other states, we're beginning to see a breakdown in the difference between what doctors refer to as blunt trauma versus penetrating trauma. It is exactly what it sounds like, blunt trauma, meaning those people who are hurt in car accidents whose bodies slam up against a windshield or against a steering wheel and have no visible injuries but are obviously severely injured, and penetrating trauma being knife wounds, gunshot wounds. King says many hospitals, especially those owned by for-profit companies, have moved their ERs almost exclusively into blunt trauma care, leaving the more costly penetrating traumas for public hospitals to clean up. And that can be somewhat of a problem because, as you might expect, those people who are brought into trauma centers suffering from gunshot wounds or knife wounds are less likely to be insured than those who are coming in from falling at home or being involved in a car accident. So uh, once again, American medicine begins to move towards where the payment is, and sometimes that leaves public hospitals out of the equation. King says 50 percent of patients at public hospitals have no insurance at all, or they have Medicaid only, which reimburses hospitals only 70 to 80 percent of their costs. So they actually lose money in many cases with Medicaid. So when you're dealing with a patient population mix of Medicaid and uninsured, then you're coming from a deficit right off the bat. In regular hospitals, in regular nonprofit hospitals and for-profit hospitals, that figure of uninsured and Medicaid is probably going to be somewhere below 20 percent, often 15 to 12 percent. So that's the huge difference. Regular hospitals look for paying patients. But King says anyone who shows up in any ER with a life-threatening condition must be treated till they're stable, whether they can pay for it or not. That's the law. And what happens in those hospitals is they do, in fact, uphold the law. They treat them, stabilize them, and then they suggest that they get their follow-up care at a public hospital. Bellevue and other public hospitals obviously take the pressure off voluntary hospitals. In other words, during the Great AIDS epidemic, for example, Bellevue was ground zero when other hospitals were turning patients away. And there are many hospitals that, to be perfectly honest, frown upon uh, people who are undocumented, uninsured, and undomiciled or homeless. And so Bellevue and other public hospitals do fill that need. They provide a kind of medical care to really what you consider to be really the lower parts of the lower class, not only of the working classes, but in many cases, people who have extreme mental disabilities and people who would have a very hard time being treated somewhere else. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dr. David Oshinsky, director of the Division of Medical Humanities at New York University, Langone Medical, and author of Bellevue, Three Centuries of Medicine and Mayhem at America's Most Storied Hospital. It is the ultimate safety net hospital. It's 300 years old, the oldest public hospital in the United States. And every immigrant group in the country has come through there at one time or another. The Irish in the 1830s, the Germans in the 1850s, the Jews and Italians around the turn of the century. And today the hospital is virtually all Latino and from various parts of Asia, including China. Anytime a new immigrant group comes through New York City and comes into the country, Bellevue is usually the place that takes care of the most destitute 
among them. That, I think, has really been the mantra of the hospital for three centuries. Oshinsky says the surviving public hospitals around the nation have improved in recent years and now provide excellent care for the poor and insured alike. But public hospitals are still endangered. The people who go to public hospitals like Bellevue, other than you know, the police and civil servants and those, uh, you know, who are basically sent there by the city because the care is so good when they're injured. Most of the other people who are there are not what you would consider to be constituents who would have a lot of political clout. So if you want to talk about budget cuts, it's much easier to talk about cutting the budget of a public hospital than is the transportation system or the parks or sanitation. So in that sense, it is always on the razor's edge. And I think that the battle over illegal immigration has sort of seeped in to medical issues as well, which makes for an even more precarious situation. Oshinsky says public hospitals are desperate to attract insured patients through their doors, and to do that, they often specialize in specific areas, whether it's neuroscience and stroke care or infectious diseases. But King believes that even if public hospitals are able to attract more insured patients, this ultimate safety net won't make it on insurance reimbursements alone. It's an expensive process to provide trauma care. It's an expensive process to provide HIV, AIDS, and other infectious disease care. So it will require a renewed commitment on the public's part to understand that there's still a need for these essential services out there. You can learn more about our guests, Mike King, author of A Spirit of Charity, and David Oshinsky, author of Bellevue, by visiting our website at radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer this week is Polly Hansen. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. Medical Notes This Week Cutting back on smoking rather than quitting completely isn't enough to drastically reduce your risk of death. A study in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine finds that people who average less than one cigarette per day are still more than 60% more likely to die early compared to never smokers, and those who smoke between one and 10 cigarettes per day have a nearly 90% higher risk of early death. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says nearly 500,000 Americans die every year as a result of smoking. A lot of people consider taking a low-dose aspirin every day to cut their risk of heart attack and cancer, but many hesitate because of the increased risk of stomach bleeding. Now a study in the journal PLOS1 finds that the stomach risk is worth it. Researchers find that a low dose of aspirin every day cuts both cancer and heart attack risk by 20 to 30 percent. And while stomach bleeds are increased by about half, there's no evidence at all that any of them are fatal. And finally, men who want to protect themselves from dementia may want to jump in the sauna. A 20-year study in the journal Age and Aging shows that men who take a sauna four to seven times a week are 66% less likely to be diagnosed with dementia compared to those who sauna once a week. Researchers say they're not sure why it occurs, though cardiovascular health is also better in people who take more saunas. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.